This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Now we begin chapter 13 in the previous chapter, the Alter Rebbe described the spiritual profile of the Bainani. In the Bainani's heart, said the Alter Rebbe, evil desires may often arise, but his divine soul constantly prevents such desires from finding expression in actual thought, speech, or action. On the contrary, these three soul garments are the exclusive domain of the divine soul and are utilized by the Bainani only for thought, speech, and action of Torah study and the fulfillment of the mitzvah. And now we're going back to the beginning of Tanya, the first chapter, after this entire introduction. Now that we understand who the Benini is and what the Benini is, that in one sense, in one hand, the Benini is like the Tzaddik, on the other hand, the Benini is more like the Rasha. When it comes to behavior-wise, behaviorally, the Benini is like the Tzaddik. He's perfect. Not a single blemish. Uncompromising. Thought, speech, action, man and God, man and man, emotional attitudes, perfect. But on the other hand, in regarding the essence, in regarding his soul, he's actually closer to the Russia because there has been no core transformation. He still has temptations, he's still flesh and blood, he's still very much human and um, very much attracted to materialism. He has tremendous self-control, self-discipline, but internally he does not have the power to subconsciously transform, transform his, his soul. And therefore, internally he's the same level as the, as the Russia, the same human being, despite the thousands of hours of Torah and the, and the many mitzvot and, and being perfect behaviorally, but it doesn't transform, internally it doesn't transform it doesn't affect us that deeply. It doesn't penetrate that deeply. And on a conscious level, we still are, remain unrefined, and we still remain very much materialistic and very much part of this materialistic world and very much attracted to materialistic things. So although he has enough presence of mind and enough inner strength to, be, to know what he wants in life and to go after it and to be focused, centered in life, but nevertheless, internally, he's closer to the Russia than he is to the Tzad. He still has temptations. He still has the Yitzhah, and he will have for the rest of his life. There's an inner dissonance. There'll always be an inner conflict, an inner dissonance. And that's his destiny for the rest of his life. So based on this understanding, now he goes back to the question he began, if you remember, at the beginning of the first chapter in Tanya. He asked the question. Accordingly, we may understand the comment of our sages that the Benonim are judged by both their good and evil inclinations. Both judge him and dictate his conduct. 
As scriptural support for this contention, the Talmud cites, For it is written, He, the Almighty, stands at the right hand of the poor man to save him from them that judge his soul. The plural, them that judge, indicates the presence of two judges within the person, the evil inclination and the good. So the Talmud brings this as a proof that every person has two judges inside of him. There's the Yetzirah, the good inclination, and the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. So the question is, and this here is referring to the Benini. If we understand the word Benini to mean, as in the conventional sense, average, middle, 50-50, then you have to be careful when you do averages. You know, someone wanted to know, they were they moving to a neighborhood, what's the weather like? The average is, is 50. No one told them in the summer it's 120, in the winter it's minus 40. So, you know, that's a very misleading average. So when you say, if Benini means 50-50, means 50% righteous, 50% evil. The question is, what do you mean he has two judges? He doesn't have two judges, he has two rulers. The Yetzirah rules 50%, and the Yetzirah rules 50%. Instead of having one Russia has one ruler. He's in total control. Either he hates a hard or total control. A tzaddik has one ruler. A Benini has two rulers, two equal rulers, 50-50. Rotation. <laughs> one, one, one minute. This one is the prime minister, the next one this is the prime minister. But that's not what the Pasuk says. That's not what the Talmud says. He says, Zev is a shift, and he has two judges, not two rulers. Can he explain? We thus find that the Benini's inclinations are described as his judges. Now, were the term Benini to be understood in its simple, literal sense of one who has an equal history of good deeds and bad, it should more probably be said that the Benini is ruled by both inclinations. For one to sin, his evil inclination must rule him. For one to do good, his good inclination must rule. The Benini, who supposedly does both, must be ruled and not merely judged by both. However, according to the explanation of the term Benini given in the previous chapter, it is clear that, indeed, the Benini is merely judged by both inclinations, not ruled by both, as shall be explained presently. Note that our sages did not say he is ruled by both the good inclination and the evil, Hasrasholim, because where the evil nature gains any rule and dominion, albeit momentarily, over the small city, Whenever the evil rules one's body like into a city which both the good inclination and the evil seek to conquer. One is deemed wicked, Russia, at such time. So you can't call him a Baini. He's no longer a Baini. That's why you can't say a Baini, this one rules and the other one rules. He has two rulers. It's impossible. Because the moment the Yitzhahar rules, that Yitzhahar is actually in charge and in control and can get the person to actually sin in thought, speech, or action, even to man and man, then he's no longer um, he's no longer Benin. He's a Russia. So the, the Talmud says a Benini Zev is a and has two rulers. He can cannot say two judges, two rulers. He has two judges. A Benini Zev has two judges. Rather, the evil inclination in the Benini is no more than, for example, a magistrate or a judge who expresses a, his opinion on a point of law. Yet, in fact, his decision is not necessarily final. But there is another magistrate or judge who disagrees with him. Uh, two judges means you have a, a court, court case, you have to decide, and each judge has his own opinion. This is before the verdict. 
the opinions. The judges are discussing amongst themselves. This one, this judge thinks this way. You have a right wing and you have a left wing. You have a Yetzotov, you have a This one thinks this way, this one thinks the other way. You have opinions. All they can do is give opinions. So a Benini has two opinions because he has this inner conflict. He has two warring sides. He has the physical, the material, and the spiritual. These two souls, these two centers of, of being. And one draws him upwards to godliness and towards the divine and selflessness and wholesomeness and goodness. And the other one draws downward. Instant gratification, the material. And um, there are two judges, two opinions, two inclinations. But nevertheless, it doesn't mean, just because a judge has an opinion, it doesn't mean that he gets his way. It doesn't mean that the law will follow him, that the verdict will follow his opinion. He has one opinion, the other one has another opinion, so who decides? So you have to have a third judge who comes in and decides, weighs in, and then you have a majority of two over one. So who's the third judge? It then becomes necessary in order to formulate a binding decision to arbitrate between the two, and the final verdict will rest with the arbitrator. So it doesn't mean arbitrator could either convince both judges to reconcile the differences and get everyone to be on the same page. But in this case, arbitrator, no, he gives the majority. He, tr- he decides which opinion is more correct, and then it becomes two against one. Reminds me, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Dov Ber, used to say, he says, when two Hasidim get together, when two Jews get together and they discuss their spiritual problems or challenges, he says, then you end up with two godly souls ganging up against one ego. Why? They both have egos and they both have godly souls. So why, when they get together to discuss their spiritual well-being and their soul, why is it two against one? It should be two against two. The answer is very simple. Every ego only cares about itself. My ego cares about myself, and my friend's ego only cares about himself. It's not with the interest of my ego that another person should sin. It's only my own benefit, my own enjoyment. It's selfish. It's all I care about is myself. The divine soul, however, is selfless. It's loving. It doesn't only care about itself. It genuinely cares about another soul. So when you have two Jews getting together, knocking their heads together, and trying to help each other, it's two godly souls against one ego. Therefore, it's a tremendous strength. It's two against one. It's not a match. And the ego just can't fight that. It's a powerful energy. That's the whole idea of a Hasidic fabring and a Hasidic get-together. When Jews get together and they discuss the servicing of Hashem, and the, it, it's two godly souls ganging up against one ego. Because you have more than two, you have a whole gathering, it's a hundred godly souls against one, forget about it. So, but this is the same idea that when the, you have these two equal judges, two equal judges. This one has an opinion, the other one has an opinion. The Yetzotayv is a force in your life, the divine soul is a power in your life, and the ego is a power in your life, very powerful force in your life. So they balance each other. So you need a third opinion to come and to tip the scale to decide who is that who is that third opinion now he's going to explain who, who is the third opinion similarly in the battle between the evil inclination and the good the evil inclination states its opinion in the left part of the Benin's heart that's where the source of the blood the passion the thrill seeking fun seeking part of the person 
It creates an evil desire in his heart and demands that, the act, that he act accordingly, thus rendering judgment as to his future conduct. From the heart, the desire ascends to the mind for contemplation. This ascent is automatic. Whenever a desire is awakened in the heart, the brain will contemplate it. And so it originates in the heart, the source, the centers in the heart. But from the heart, it immediately uh, ascends to the mind to um, think about it, to um, figure out how to pursue it and how to, uh, how to actualize it, how to realize this, this uh, uh, temptation. Immediately upon its ascent to the brain, it is challenged by the second judge, the divine soul residing in the brain, which extends into the right part of the heart where the good inclination abides. So it's just the opposite. The godly soul, the godly soul originates and is centered and is focused in the mind. Because it all begins with awareness, with education and knowledge and awareness. Because the way to the heart is through the mind, through awareness. And after there's awareness, then, then that leads to the heart. Then that evokes an emotion, a feeling of tenderness, a feeling of love, of, a feeling of an attraction t- towards godliness. We weren't created with an arbiter. We have only the two. Only the two. So who is the arbiter? That's what he says now. The good inclination is actually the voice of the divine soul's emotional attributes and is hence active in the right part of the heart. The good inclination thus battles the evil, ensuring the latter's passion not be realized for the opinion of the good inclination is that all of the body's faculties and organs be utilized only for matters of holiness. He's explaining, you know, classically we always understood the terms. Well, every Jew is familiar with the terms Yetzah Toiv and Yetzah Hara, a good inclination and an evil inclination. The revolution of the Tanya is that it's not just a Yetzah Toiv and Yetzah Hara. It's two souls. Two souls that by their very being are different. One soul by its very being is godly and holy. That's the divine soul, the piece of the divine essence that each and every Jew has within them. They're born with, inherent, innate. And then you have the other soul, the natural soul, the ego, by its very being. Not because you incline, you have inclinations, negative inclinations, unwholesome inclinations. Just by its very being, it's already... Klippa and Sidracha, it's already the other side, it's already a shell, it's already a distortion, it's split off, disconnected, just by being. I, egotistical, it's already a distortion, because it's not God-centered, it's I-centered. That's the revolution of the Tanya. But, as a result of this ego, egotistical soul, as a result, it results in the Yetzirah, an evil inclination, this is the expression, this is the emotional expression of ego. Ego wants to have fun, thrill, instant gratification, materialism, without thinking of consequences, without thinking long-term, without thinking, is this really good for me? Do I really want this? Is this what I need when I want? It's junk, it's junk food, it's junk lifestyle. It's instant gratification. So that's the expression of the ego. So to the godly soul also has an expression. The emotional expression of the godly soul is... The essence of the godly soul is basically focus in the mind, awareness, contemplation, understanding godliness. But the heart 
is the expression, the emotional expression of a godly soul, that you have a yetzer toiv, you have a, 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 a heart, an emotional attraction to godliness, you want to pursue godly things, you feel a tenderness to, toward godly things. This is an expression, an emotional expression of, of the godly soul. That's what we call yetzer toiv and yetzer har. So the end result is you have this emotional clash, a very powerful clash between the Yetzir Toiv and the Yetzir Hara, the emotional expression of the godly soul and the emotional expression of the animal soul, of the ego. So we have these two judges, two equal opinions, two equal forces, powerful forces within us. So who's the verdict like? Who decides? Who gets to decide? Yeah, that's, that's the answer in the final verdict rests with the arbitrator, the Holy One, blessed be he, who comes to the aid of the good inclination, enabling it to prevail over the evil inclination. As our sages say, man's evil inclination gathers strength daily, and if the Almighty did not help him, i.e. help his good inclination, he could not overcome it, his evil inclination. The help that Hashem grants him is the glow of divine light that illuminates his divine soul that it may gain superiority and mastery over the folly of the fool, the evil inclination, a dominion paralleling the superiority of light over darkness, as stated above in chapter 12. Just as a little light banishes much darkness, so is the abounding folly and darkness of one's evil inclination driven away by dint of the little light of holiness emanating from his divine soul. It is this ray of divine illumination that constitute Hashem's assistance to the divine soul. The question is, in the previous chapter we learned that how does the Benini overcome the struggle against the ego soul, the natural soul, natural inclinations, urges, instincts? So he gave two explanations. One explanation is because it's mind over matter. That's in human nature, the way God created us. Human nature is mind, the supremacy of mind over matter. When you see when it comes to matters that we care about, that matters us deeply, we have presence of mind, enough presence of mind to overcome our natural urges and instincts. We have discipline, we have presence of mind, and that's a natural power that God gave us, the mind over matter. The mind is superior to the heart. And then he said, because there's a divine light, the power of the divine light, power of the, the mitzvah. When you, sh- when you shine a little light, there's no room for darkness. You can't have light and darkness in the same space. So if you bring light to near mitzvah of Torah, or you bring the light of Torah and mitzvah into your life, the, the darkness just vanishes and melts away. It doesn't even offer any resistance. This chapter, however, the Alter Rebbe doesn't even mention the fact that mind over matter. Why doesn't he say, how does the Benini overcome his struggle, this equal struggle between these two judges? Maybe the Benini himself is, is, the, is the arbitrator, because the Benini has the power of mind over matter. So that power, that power of arbitration, the Benini should have the power to be able to decide and to render the verdict. Yet the Alter Rebbe doesn't mention He says, the arbitrator is God Almighty. And God Almighty helps us, Hashem, because of the, the divine light that suffuses our soul and the divine light that's contained in, in the Torah mitzvot. So therefore, that gives us the strength to be able to overcome the folly of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, and of the ego soul. So how do we explain this, this discrepancy? 
So the Rebbe gives two explanations. One explanation is that when do we say the mind over, over matter, that the mind is superior to the heart? That is, if the evil inclination and the animal soul are within the heart, but never reach the mind. Where the godly soul is in the mind, when the godly soul is in the mind, then, because of the supremacy and the superiority of mind over the heart, of mind over matter, so when the mind... When a person is fully aware of godliness and a person is immersed in prayer, as he described in the previous chapter, the Benini during prayer contemplates godliness and meditates on godliness and is fully aware of godliness and is totally immersed, his mind is totally immersed, deeply, deeply immersed in understanding godliness, then because of the superiority of mind over matter, of mind over the heart, the heart has no control over the person. So when your mind is so filled with light, when your mind is so filled with the light of Hashem, with the light of godliness, there's no room for darkness. And the darkness melts away, but also it's mind over matter. The mind, when the mind reigns supreme, then your natural urges and instincts are totally subdued. And, you, and you're able to overcome your natural urges and instincts. And as he says, even after Daphne, even after you pray, when you leave and you close the Siddur, you close the prayer book, and you go out into the business world, and you go out into the regular world, the material world, but at least an impression remains from your service, from that experience, that experience, where your mind, where you had that, uh, that illumination in your mind, that you had that total focus and concentration and awareness. That illumination leaves an impression for the rest of the day. And therefore you have a mind of a matter. But in this chapter that al Rebbe is talking about, a case where a person doesn't have that experience, that prayer experience, doesn't have that deep meditational experience. A person, a Benini, who, who's not deeply immersed in prayer, who's not deeply immersed in the contemplation of godliness, whose mind is not fully engaged in deep contemplation. He's not praying. He's not coming from prayer. He's just going about his ordinary life. And he has these natural urges and instincts that every human being has. Unhealthy, unwholesome urges and instincts. And they don't remain in the heart. From the heart, they immediately, as he said, enter into the mind. So it's one mind against another mind. He can't say mind over matter. Because they're both, they're both now on the level of the mind. The ego now has reached the mind because you're contemplating it and, you're, and you don't, your mind is not filled with godliness that it can automatically overcome any negative instinct or desire your heart may have. Is this uh, distinct from willpower, or is it the secret of willpower, or is it completely separate? No, it's distinct from willpower. It's, it's, it's the awareness, presence <coughs> of the mind. When the, the mind is aware, um, then you're able to overcome instincts, natural instincts. You know, the desire to be healthy. You're aware of it, you're conscious of it. And therefore, you're able, you, you, you don't self-destruct. You don't act in a certain way. When was the last time you rolled over, over your bed at night? Even, even when you're asleep, you have enough presence of mind not to harm yourself. Because it's something you're aware of. You keenly feel. Something that you keenly feel and are keenly aware of, then you overcome your natural instincts. You may be drunk and intoxicated, but you're not going to roll down the steps. You have enough presence of mind to hold on to the rail and, and, and not harm yourself. Because when something you're keenly aware of and you keenly feel and you care about, 
it's mind over matter. When it comes to business, something you're keenly feel and keenly aware of, the desire to make money and to be rich, you're not going to sabotage your own business. You have rages and instincts. You want to you kill the customer. You want to tell them off. So, you control yourself. Everyone does it every day of their life. Mother Teresa would, 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 would be jealous of the self-discipline that the average person has when it comes to something in their life that they're keenly aware of and that deeply matters to them. That's mind of a matter. When the mind is fully aware and you focus and you concentrate and you're keenly aware of, then so I have urges and instincts. So what? You, can, you check your urges. You check your instincts. You don't just follow every, every urge and every instinct. Millions of people who are keenly aware of the desire to be healthy will, will check their urge and instinct to eat junk food and to eat, eat a junk lifestyle, live a junk lifestyle, and they won't do that. So it's possible. We see God gave us that nature, that ability, unlike animals. We don't have to follow every urge and every instinct. Animals just follow urges and instincts. They can't overcome the urges and instincts. We have that ability because mind over matter. So that awareness you're saying, it sounds like, could in effect replace willpower or what I call discipline. I mean, I, I, for example, feel that I lack discipline. I would like more discipline or willpower. I would like the ability to avoid certain creature comforts like staying in bed as long as I'd like to get up earlier. And you seem to be saying that an awareness could, could uh, obviate the need for more will, to, more discipline to just get out of bed earlier. Willpower is, even if you don't have the reason, just a tremendous discipline. There are people who are just tremendously disciplined and just tremendously um, stubborn. Even if they don't fully, not fully aware, and they're not keenly aware, but they just make up their mind... And nothing is going to stop them. You know, they're just persistent. And that's not a question of awareness. That's just a question of willpower. That people are willpower. That people who are born with very simple minds, but they had such willpower, they were so driven to learn and to study that these people became geniuses, because they they would they would just sit there for eighteen hours and break their heads, and and their heads their heads were made of clay. But they just drilled again and again, and, and they wouldn't let go relentlessly until they understood it. And so the power, willpower is very powerful. Willpower could overcome even the mind and can direct the mind. But that's a different energy, it's a different force. But here we're talking about just deep awareness, keen awareness, has the ability to just overcome, to check your instincts. It's just a nature that God gave us. You have to utilize it. We're keenly aware of health. We're keenly aware of, sometimes. We're keenly aware. We should be keenly aware of health. We're keenly aware of making money. Uh, but if we were to be keenly aware of godliness, of the fact that we have a godly soul and we like to be godly and like to be wholesome, then that would also help us check our raging instincts and natural instincts, unwholesome instincts and desires. That's what prayer is all about. Prayer is a time to become aware, to contemplate, to meditate, to focus. So that's mind over matter. So that's a very high level of Abedini. In the chapter 12, Dr. Rebbe is talking about a very high level of Abedini, the highest level of Abedini. Abedini who, whose mind is keenly aware and therefore naturally is able to overcome his, his, his instincts, his human instincts and urges, unhealthy urges. And even after prayer, there remains an impression, an impression, a taste, an impression stays with him for the rest of the day and that gives him the strength to have mind over matter. In our chapter, he's talking about a lower level of Abedini. He's not talking about the highest level of Abedini. He's talking about a lower level of Abedini. Someone who struggles, neighbors, or helps them. 
someone who struggles doesn't ha- doesn't have the the mind of a matter because his mind is not engaged and fully occupied. He's not keenly aware of godliness. He's not contemplating godliness. He's not meditating. He's not busy engaged in meditating. He's just a normal human being with or, uh, instincts and urges. And the instincts immediately enter into the mind. So the godly soul is in the mind, and your and your animal soul is lodged now in your mind. So what? How how are you going to overcome one over the other? That's what he's discussing here. In that case, the average bainani, not the highest level of the bainani, the average bainani who has these two equal voices, not only in the heart but also in the mind. How are you going to overcome one over the other? Without contemplation, how are you going to overcome? What's going to give you the strength to be able? to overcome the emotions of the godly soul, should be able to overcome the emotions of the animal soul. The Yetzir Toiv should be able to overcome the Yetzir How are you going to do this? How are you going to accomplish this? You don't have the advantage of mind over matter because you don't have your mind. Your mind is not fully engaged, deeply engaged, keenly aware, in a deep meditative state on a daily basis. So how, how are you going to overcome this? So for this, we need a third... Yalta Rebbe now goes on to resolve the contradiction and answer the question noted in the opening words of the Tanya. The Talmud states that a Jew is charged with an oath to regard himself as wicked, whereas elsewhere the Mishnah uh, declares, be not wicked in your own estimation. Also, if a person considers himself wicked, he will be grieved at heart and depressed and will not be able to serve Hashem joyfully and with a contented heart. So, he said earlier that the a little light dispels a lot of darkness. You can't have light and darkness in the same place. So when the Benini's mind is deeply engrossed, engaged in godly contemplation, when the mind is filled with the light of Hashem, there's no room for darkness. So in that case, the, the Yetzirah, the animal soul, the ego, cannot rise to the mind. It remains in the heart because the mind is occupied, the mind is filled then it's a struggle between the mind and the heart. When there's a struggle between the mind and the heart, there's this natural ability that God gave to each and every human being that the mind should be able to overcome the heart, that the mind over matter, the mind is supreme, that the mind can check the natural instincts of the heart. But that's only a Benini who's davening, whose mind is engaged, whose mind is filled with the light of Hashem, keenly aware. But that Benini, who's not, whose mind is not filled, who's not engaged in deep contemplation, his mind is not filled with the light of Hashem. So not only is the Yetzirah in the heart, the Yetzirah enters into the mind also. So now I have this equal struggle. So how do I overcome who decides, who makes the decision? So he said, that decision, that's Hashem. Then the only thing, the only thing that can give us the strength, if Hashem would not help us, we would not be able to overcome this challenge. It's only by divine because the power of the Yetzirah is so powerful. Because we are of this world. And as I believe Yitzhak Baditrif said, you know, materialism you placed all around us. Godliness you placed between books. And you expect us to be able to overcome all these temptations and distractions and challenges. If you would have put materialism between books in the library, you would have to read in the library about materialism. And godliness would be obvious and self-evident and transparent. Okay, then you would have a struggle, equal struggle. It seems like the odds are all against us. Where does a person get the strength to be able to overcome? When the Yetzirah is so powerful that it's in your heart and it's in your mind, and you don't have that light, that, that illumination to negate the Yetzirah. So you have two, these two equal voices, powerful voices. And if not the godly soul's help, we could not win. There's no way we could win. Because the world is all around us. The distractions and materialism are so powerful.
It's only because Hashem helps us. Because Hashem helps us and the divine light is so powerful, the power of a mitzvah is so powerful. When a Jew does one single mitzvah, the Yetzirah knows the power of one mitzvah. That's why the Yetzirah will go to the end of the earth. There's no, there's no effort that the Yetzirah will spare to get the simplest Jew, the seemingly insignificant Jew, the seemingly worthless Jew, on a, on a, simple, on a worthless day, on a meaningless day, to do the simplest sin or to do the simplest sin of commission or mission. Because he knows the power of one single Jew doing one mitzvah is so powerful. It brings such light into this world. It's so powerful, he's terrified of it. He has to stop the Jew at all costs. Any Jew, any Jew, anything, anytime, any place. So he knows the power of, of the light, the power of the light of Hashem, of Torah and Mitzvah. So this is the help that Hashem helps us, the help that Hashem illuminates our soul and gives the godly soul that extra strength to be able to overcome the evil inclination to be able to overcome the ego soul, the natural soul, natural inclinations. Hashem should help us, right? Save us from the Yitzhahara, right? We have to say a special prayer, right? We need Hashem's help. Without Hashem's help, we're going nowhere. Okay, so now, now, he's coming to explain the question that he asked in the beginning of the Tanya. In the beginning of the Tanya, he asked, it says, a person should always regard himself as wicked. When a neshama comes down to this world, before our soul entered into this world, it was administered an oath that ti tzadik, valti rasha, be righteous and don't be evil. But you should always be in your eyes like, as if you're a rasha. And Al-Tarebi asked the question. Firstly, it contradicts the mission and ethics of our fathers. It says a person should not be wicked in your own eye. And even without the contradiction, it just, it's not logical. If you're going to tell a person, no matter what he does, he's a rasha. If you tell a person, you did something wrong, so I can fix it. I do tshuva. But if you tell a person, no matter what you do, the rest of your life, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter your best efforts, you always remain a rasha. That's a very depressing thought. Then it's hopeless. I might as well quit while I'm behind. If there's nothing I can do, whatever I do, I'm worthless anyway. And what kind of message is that? I mean, that, that goes the opposite of a Jew should be cheerful, a Jew has to be joyful, a Jew has to, you know, Yiddishkeit has to be uplifting and inspiring. And here you're telling him that no matter what you do, it's just, it's just help, it's hopeless. There's nothing you can do. You always remain a rush. That was the question he asked. But based on what he explained now, now we'll be able to understand the meaning of this oath. Continue. The Talmud. He now explains the meaning of the oath where he reads, be in your own eyes like a Russia, in that when he got himself, not as an actual Russia, but as like one, having traits similar to those of the Russia. This means that he must consider himself a Benani who possesses the same evil in his soul as does a Russia and can desire evil just as a Russia does. In the author Rebbe's words, yet inasmuch as the evil in the left part of the Benini's heart is in its native strength, craving after all the pleasures of this world, and is neither so minute as to be nullified before the good of the divine soul, as is the case with the tzaddik, nor has it been displaced from its position to any degree. So even though the person has been perfect, he's doing everything right, thought, speech, and action. But the bottom line is the ego soul, the natural soul, is as strong as ever. It hasn't budged one iota. 
despite the tremendous amount of Torah and mitzvot and white and illumination and it's at its core and at its essence the, God, the animal soul remains firmly lodged it hasn't budged hasn't gone anywhere on the contrary just getting stronger and stronger so when it comes to your inner position your inner position you're just as you like the rush there has been no core change you have the same temptations you had earlier the same urges same instincts and there's nothing you can do about it despite all the Torah and mitzvah despite having a perfect record but the temptation and the desire remain. And there's neither so minute to be nullified before the good of the divine soul, as is the case with the tzaddik, nor has it been displaced from its position to any, any degree, but merely lacks authority and power to become diffused throughout the limbs of the body to cause them to do, speak, or think evil. Nor is the evil's lack of ability attributable to the Benoni's efforts, for his evil, like that of the Rasha, retains its native strength to pervade the entire body rather the evil is powerless merely because the Holy One, blessed be He, who stands at His right hand of the poor man, at the right hand of the poor man, helping Him and irradiating His divine soul so that it may be able to prevail over the evil. Thus it is only divine intervention that prevents the evil from pervading the body. Essentially, however, the evil of the Bainanese animal soul is as strong as it was at birth. So it's not his own strength. It's not that he has the ability to overcome the Yetzirah, the animal soul. It's only the divine, only by divine strength. So it's not really him. As far as he's concerned, his own nature left his own devices. His animal soul is as powerful as ever and would take over in a minute if not for Hashem constantly helping him, if not for that divine light, the power of the divine light to check, to arrest, and to check the animal soul, that it shouldn't be able to control and uh, express itself in behavior, in thought, speech, and action, he would have been consumed by the, by the animal soul. So the animal soul is as powerful as ever. It hasn't been chained. It's just been arrested. It, it, its expression has been arrested. It's been stopped. You know, you've, you've stopped the enemy at the gate. Not, not because of your own strength. Because you have a third helper. Hashem is helping you. But other than that, they would, they would overrun the city. So that means it's as strong as ever. The animal soul is as strong as ever. Therefore, the Benoni is described as being Kurasha, like a Russia, but not actually a Russia. As in the statement of our sages, even if the whole world tells you that you are a tzaddik, be in your own eyes like a Russia. So the whole world tells you you're a tzaddik. Why is the world telling you you're a tzaddik? Because you're behaving like a tzaddik. You're acting like a tzaddik. You're perfect. There's not a single blemish. You're uncompromising. You're perfect in thought, speech, and action. So for all appearances, the world is telling you for appearances you look like a tzaddik. They can't differentiate in you and the tzaddik. Everyone's calling you a tzaddik. But only you know internally. You know your own status internally. Internally, you know that you're not a tzaddik. All you are is you're like a Russia. Internally, you're like a Russia. God forbid to say you're a Russia. 
The Mishnah doesn't say we administer the soul and all that you that even though you should be a tzaddik, but you should always view yourself like a, as a Russia. If a person would always view himself as a Russia, it contradicts the Mishnah ethics of our fathers, and it's very depressing. That's not what the Mishnah is saying. The Mishnah says you can't argue with a fact. Either you're a Benini or not a Benini. Just measure your behavior. You know your own behavior. Are you thinking properly? Are you speaking properly? Are you thinking like a Jew? Speaking like a Jew? Acting like a Jew? So you're doing the right thing. And don't be depressed. Be proud of it and be, be inspired by it. But internally you should know that you're like a Russia because you still have an evil inclination. You still have a healthy ego. And if not for Hashem helping you out and helping you check your ego, it would run rampant in a moment. So you know the truth that yes, externally, appearance-wise, you look like a tzaddik. But internally, you still have that inner dissonance. You still have the inner conflict, that struggle. So you, you like a Russia. In that sense, you compare to the Russia. But not a Russia, God forbid. But so a tzaddik doesn't have to have that mind over matter quality. Well, it's a natural quality that everyone has. The tzaddik has such crystal clear. His mind is so clear that not only his, his, his subconscious is his conscious. So his inner depth is, is his consciousness, and that's why he has such clarity. That's why he's fully awake. While most of us are sleepwalking through life, spiritually sleepwalking, some of us are in a state of, state of faint, or some of us are comatose, a tzaddik is fully aware, fully awake. The tzaddik, is, his mind is so clear, there's no barrier by the tzaddik between the subconscious and the conscious, heaven and earth. He has such... Well, he has... He, that quality of, of mind over matter is, is, is a quality that everyone has, but he's able to, to use that quality to go from strength to strength and you know, to overcome, overcome limitations. Not to overcome negativity, but to overcome limitations within positive. Now, there's one thing to a person to overcome is negative traits. It's another thing to overcome your habit. Even a positive habit. Is, is, is limiting. Once you do it out of rote, it's just a habit, then it becomes limiting and stifling. So the tzaddik grows from strength to strength. The tzaddik is always pushing himself, pushing the envelope. He's always, he's always going beyond his nature, beyond his habit. So he's using his mind over matter to run, to run that extra mile. And everyone on their own level. The tzaddik on his level, the tzaddik has to constantly push himself. The tzaddik is not vegetating or sleep, sleeping. Contrary, the tzaddik is fully aware. The tzaddik is fully awake. He constantly is to- totally excited. He's, he's running in all engines. Does he start off as a benoni or not necessarily? The tzaddik is born with the potential to be a tzaddik. Of course, he has to work his way. Like Einstein was born to be Einstein, but Einstein had to work his way to become Einstein. We can work from now from a thousand years. We'll never be Einstein. Einstein works, and he ends up being Einstein. So, of course, the tzaddik is someone who's born with the potential to be a tzaddik, but he has to work. He has to, his work and effort and choice. But he has the potential, and he, he realizes that potential, he becomes a tzaddik. We don't have the potential to be a tzaddik, so we can work and work and exert effort, and yet we'll never become the tzaddik. Well, we can be a bain. We can be a bain. Every one of us has the ability to be a bain. That, that's, that's what God asks from us. That's all God demands from us. That's all. <laughs> He should not regard himself as an actual Russia, for the Mishnah admonishes, be not wicked in your own estimation. Moreover, regarding oneself as a Russia hinders one from serving God joyfully. Rather, one should consider oneself a being, and should not believe, i.e. accept the world's opinion, which would have him believe that the evil in him has been nullified by the good, for this is the level of a tzaddik.
Only the tzaddik succeeds in nullifying and transforming the evil within him. But the world, which judges the benoni by his actions and sees that he never transgresses, assumes that he too has effectively banished from within him the evil that is the cause of sin. Consequently, people regard him as a tzaddik. He is therefore cautioned against accepting the opinion of, quote, the world, end quote. Instead, he should take the view that the essence and core of the evil is in its full native strength and might in the left part of his heart, not having vanished or departed from him at all. On the contrary, with the passage of time, the evil has gained strength because it utilized it, i.e. the animal soul, considerably in eating and drinking and in other mundane pursuits. As with every faculty, constant use of the animal soul causes it to become even stronger than it was at birth. He's saying that the passing of time by exercising and using your body and every day, every additional meal, every additional material experience only strengthens your ego. Not only in a case, as we learned in chapter 8, if a person eats not for the sake of heaven. So that we can understand. If you eat not for the sake of heaven, that's a coarsening experience. Eating could be a coarsened experience or it could be an elevated experience. If, and it all depends on your intention. If you eat with the proper intention, you have a mind, you want to eat because to have strength in order to serve Hashem, and you realize your table is an altar, and you're offering a sacrifice to Hashem, the food is a sacrifice to Hashem, you're elevating the sparks, you're releasing the divine spark, then the act of eating becomes elevating. If you eat just for the sake of indulgence, or just for the sake of surviving, without any divine intention, without any divine thought, the act itself becomes a coarsening act. Versus if you eat for the right intention, or let's say you eat on Shabbos. Shabbos is a holy, to eat is a mitzvah to eat on Shabbos. So the eating itself becomes a mitzvah on a holiday. So you see that the act of eating itself could be elevating. Or the act of eating, and a tzaddik, all his life eats like Shabbos and Yom Tif. The whole life, his whole life, his whole act of eating is just eating to be, to be full in order to have the strength to serve Hashem. So he's thinking about Hashem. The theme of everything that he does, all his materialistic engagements, are purely divine. So that eating doesn't coarsen. Dr. Rebbe explained in the 8th chapter, this tzaddik, like Rebbe, Rebbe Nakalis, doesn't have to go through any of the, of the purgatories, doesn't have to go through the processes of chibat kever, all those purification processes, because his body, has no, his body is pure and holy. Because every moment of his existence, every moment, every experience, every, every drink of water that he had, and every food that he tasted, and every materialistic experience... Was, was permeated with, with a divine theme and divine intent. Therefore, it was an elevating experience. It was a godly experience. There's nothing coarse about it. There's nothing... But most people, most Bainanin, cannot help but either indulging in materialism and enjoying it, enjoying the materialistic aspect of eating or drinking, or even if not, just, just eating just for the sake of eating, without any intent, not any negative intent, but not any positive intent. Although they will take this energy and utilize this energy to serve Hashem with, because it's that food and that, that energizes you, and you take that energy and then you study Torah with it and you do a mitzvah and you pray with it, and, but, and therefore the food is elevated. But the fact that while you ate it, it was without a divine intent, that leaves an impression on the body, a negative impression. 
That's how we learn and we describe at great length in chapter 8. But here the Alter Rebbe is saying something different. Alter Rebbe is saying, even, even in the rear case, where a person ate, even the act of eating, everything he did was L'shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven. Nevertheless, the act of eating itself coarsens a person. It's inevitable. And what's the best proof for it? The most eloquent proof? Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. Could you imagine Moshe Rabbeinu was eating? It was permeated with godliness. It was drenched with godliness. Every aspect of his life was totally permeated with godliness. The holiest Jew. The greatest prophet that ever has lived and ever will live. Yet, when Moshe went to heaven, three times in a row, for a total of 120 days, 40 days each, he couldn't eat bread, and he couldn't drink. Because as refined as Moshe's eating is, when you get to heaven, eating is a contradiction. You can't eat and experience such intense revelations of godliness. Eating is coarse. There's no room for eating when you're in heaven. When you're having such divine revelations, there's no room for eating. Eating is too coarse. So you see that eating, because it's material, because ultimately it's material, it's a bodily experience, a material experience, ultimately it, it coarsens. No matter how noble and how inspired and how meaningful and how the content and the intent and the theme, and it doesn't matter. The bottom line is, every day you eat, every day we live life and we... And we take care of our bodies, we exercise our materialistic needs, it coarsens us. It has an effect on us. And therefore, the ego gets stronger and stronger from day to day. The Talmud says in the beginning, the Yitzhahara is like a visitor. Then he becomes a frequent guest. And then he becomes the boss and he kicks you out. <laughs> he takes over. Every day we get older, we get more comfortable. We get more comfortable with ourselves. A little jaded, a little, a little more comfortable with ourselves a little less an edge, a little less. And it coarsens us. So the Benini, despite the fact that he's perfect, he's thinking like a Jew and speaking like a Jew and learning and da- learning all day and davening and doing mitzvahs, and he's perfect. But another day of chicken and potatoes, another bagel, another piece of lox, another exp- human physical experience, it coarsens him. What about the Seder? That's... that's- Eating, but it's a different... Yeah, that's, that's different. The Seder, Shabbos, Yom Tev, that, that's a holy experience. The, f- <laughs> the food, the matzah itself is called food of faith. The matzah itself, eating matzah at this place of Seder, strengthens faith, gives you faith. That's unique. That's unique to the Seder. We're talking about living, daily living, daily life. Even the Seder is certainly... No, it doesn't strengthen the Yitzhahara. No, no, the Seder, the Yitzhahara is totally asleep at the Seder. The Yitzhahara is totally anesthetized, arrested. There's no room for chametz. Only for you or totally for me? For every Jew, totally arrested. The Seder is you're free. You're free from the Yitzhahara, you're free from exile. Hashem releases us from bondage, spiritual bondage. It's a purely divine experience. Matzah is food of faith. There's no chametz, it doesn't rise, there's no ego. It's anesthetized, it's put to sleep. But that's unique. That's the Seder. That's the matzah. It's the first night. It's only a mitzvah to eat matzah the first night. That, that's the matzah. But the, uh, the night of the Seder. But the, um, or the second night in Chutzlar, it's also as well. But the act of going about daily life, 
So even a benini, the fact that you're eating and this, it becomes, you grow more comfortable with yourself. And it coarsens. And therefore, not only hasn't to be a core change, if anything, your yetahara, your animal soul, is getting, your ego is getting stronger and stronger and stronger, internally. So, the, so the, this is what we tell the soul. Don't kid yourself. Don't delude yourself. Don't judge yourself the way others are judging you, because they only judge you externally. They see the surface. You see on the surface, you're perfect, you're a tzaddik. They'll say, oh, you must have already vanquished your evil inclination. You must have already totally conquered your evil inclination. You must have totally triumphed. But you know better. You know that your ego is alive and well and healthy and <laughs> vibrant and getting more vibrant and healthier from day to day. Yes, externally, you don't give an inch. But internally, your ego is not emaciated. Your ego is healthy as ever. Don't kid yourself. A person could act like a saint and then he can get to his head and say, you know, I must be, I must be a saint. It's like the story. <laughs> the story. Uh, it, was, it says in holy books, if a person wants to have a revelation of Elijah the prophet, it says if you fast for 40 days, you will merit the revelation of Elijah the prophet who only reveals himself to great tzaddikim, genuine tzaddikim. So this person wanted to have Elijah the prophet, so fasted 40 days and then he, didn't, he didn't see Elijah the prophet he was very disappointed Elijah the prophet never revealed himself to him so he comes crying to the Katsuka Rebbe and he says I don't get it it says in the holy books that, and I followed the program and it didn't work Katsuka Rebbe says you know we all know the Bachshemta's horses the Bachshemta's horses miraculously flew from place to place the Bachshemta was all over eastern Europe how could he be so all over the place thousands of stories here there because this was before the jet age. His horse and buggy was very, was very miraculous. The moment they left Mezhebuz, he had a non-Jewish Alexei, um, a non-Jewish wagon driver, and he would tell him to turn his face around and go to sleep, and the horses would go on their own and fly very quickly. One place or the other, he'd be there in a split. Fly through the forest. So he says, you know, the horses, the first time they were flying... They thought they were angels. <laughs> they became angels. They had a flight. They know their fellow horses are all trudging along, you know, trudging along. And here they're flying there. They thought already they became angels. Until they reached their destination. And they were led to the barn. <laughs> and they dived into the hay with such relish. They realized that <laughs> they remained horses. <laughs> So this guy thought that because he's following a technical program and he's fasting and this, he's ready for Elijah the prophet. Totally delusional. He says, you still remain the horse. You're still the horse. Physi- emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, you're still a horse. Yes, behaviorally, you did this, you did this, you're perfect. But don't kid yourself for a moment. There hasn't been any core change. You're still the same horse. If anything, even more of a horse, a greater horse. Because more time passed and you indulge, and not indulge, even if you didn't indulge, but you... He just became more coarsened because by living and by living in the material, material world. So this is what we tell the soul, what the heaven tells the soul before it leaves into this world, before it journeys into this world. You should be a tzaddik. You should act like a tzaddik. Don't be a Russia. God forbid. And never can see yourself a Russia. God forbid. And if you are a Russia, do teshuva and become and act like a tzaddik. Never be depressed. Never be down. Be, you could be perfect. You could be a benin. Every Jew could be a baby. But never for a moment delude yourself that you've 
achieved a core transformation, that you've become this holy saint, that you've resolved the inner conflict, that you no longer have to struggle. Because that's very dangerous. A moment the person lowers his guard, that's part of the trick of the Yetzirah. The biggest trick is the person becomes arrogant. And the person lowers his guard. And that's all over. Once the enemy gets you to lower the guard, you're finished. It's all over. Don't lower your guard for a minute. You have to remember that in one second, the enemy is as vibrant as ever. The enemy is as scheming as ever. The enemy is right at the gate. The enemy at the gate. And if you lower your guard for one moment, the enemy will conquer you in a second. Don't lower your guard. The enemy is not weaker. The enemy is stronger. And getting stronger from moment to moment. And the enemy feels also deprived. Don't forget that. The enemy is deprived. You know what happens when an enemy is deprived? The enemy gets hungry. The enemy wants, wants blood. So the more the person is a benini, the more perfect the person is, is acting like a tzaddik and is a benini. You've deprived the Yitzhara day in, day out. Do you think Yitzhara is happy? Yitzhara is, is getting anxious. Yitzhara is, is strengthening itself. Yitzhara just, just can't take it anymore. In the moment it detects any weakness or any, any softness or lowering of the guard on your part, you're finished. So don't delude yourself for a moment with the world. Don't, don't listen to this a feedback that you're getting. You must be a tzaddik. It's not true. You should always view yourself that you're still in the middle of the struggle. And the Yitzhah is as live as ever and vibrant as ever and powerful as ever and more powerful. And it's hungry because you have deprived it for years and perhaps decades. And the Yitzhara is getting stronger and it can't wait. It just wants to get a sin out of you. <laughs> at least slander. At least a white lie. Something. At least anger, rage, temper, jealousy, something. And you're not giving an inch. The Yitzhara is sitting. All it does all day is plotting and scheming. So don't lower your guard for one moment. That's what, that's what the oath tells the Jew. Don't lower your guard for a moment. That's the most dangerous thing you can do. This is world war. Be sharp. Be alert. And realize the Yitzhara is no emaciated enemy. Don't think for a second that your enemy is emaciated and weak just because you've deprived it of its expression and you, you, you were able to check the enemy at the gate. You, you did not allow it to conquer the city. It's, it's not getting weaker in the country. It's getting stronger and stronger and stronger and hungrier and jealous of you and hungrier. And the Yitzhara becomes very powerful. So you have to be, every, every day you have to be more alert and you have to strengthen yourself and you have to be able to overcome the Yitzhara and pray to Hashem to help you. Be sharp to the last day of your life because you're always going to have that inner comfort. And the stronger you get, the stronger the godly soul gets, the stronger the animal sold it. Stronger and stronger. It's, 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 it's a plus and a minus. It's equal. The stronger you get, the more Torah, the more mitzvot you do, the stronger you get. Every, another day passes and you're bainini and you're perfect, the stronger the Yetzirah gets. Till the rest, till the last day of your life. Don't lower your guard for a moment. Constant struggle, constant dissonance. This is the message that we give to the bainini. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.